This audio podcast is from the River Church in Fort Worth, Texas. We hope God uses it to encourage and grow your relationship with Christ. For more information about the River Church, visit us online at theriverdfw.com or facebook.com backslash theriverdfw. Good morning, River Church. It is so good to see you here this morning. Um, I have a surprise for you, though. I'm not going to be preaching this morning. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Easy, easy, easy. Yeah, we're a little bit too excited about that. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but the, I want to introduce you to someone who um, has been a huge influence, friend, mentor um, in my life and the lives of a few different people actually here at the church. I met Keith uh, 10 years ago. I don't know if you realize this, Keith. 10 years ago, this September, um, when I went moved to Jackson, Mississippi to go to school, and uh, he was the guy that was checking me in. And I don't even know if you remember that, but he's the one that set me up for my classes and uh, ended up, he was one of our professors at college. And uh, I got invited into a discipleship group that he had. And in that discipleship group were several guys. And the people in that group's names were Joel Ibermento, Colin Stacy, Stephen Ryan Smith, Dale Larkins, and Bill Griffith. And of those men, Four of them are were charter members, launching members of the River Church. And so in that discipleship group, we prayed about this place. We dreamed about this place 10 years ago. And so it's just incredible how God moves and speaks. And so um, it is such an incredible honor and blessing for me to have him come and preach this morning. So you guys, welcome Keith as he comes. Well, I just want to take a look at what God has done in 10 years. I might even have to cross the hall to see some of it. <laughs> well, what a joy is mine today to be with you. And, uh, you know, you were going through that list, and I thought, well, how many of us were from Texas? And, of course, the answer was one, but now lots of us. Um, and... I have uh, earnestly desired this opportunity to meet with you. I am full of, of uh, joy, uh, pride in the faithfulness of God, and uh, your obedience and sacrifice. And you have joined a great adventure. And some, di- some days the greatness of the adventure is not evident to you. <laughs> but it is an adventure, and that's what God calls each of us to when he says, come follow me. Well, we're in John chapter 17 this morning. John chapter 17. And I'll give you a moment to pull up your phone. And we'll have it on the screen. Um, What is Jesus doing right now? Have you thought about it? I mean, Jesus is in a fixed location. He's everywhere, but he's in a specific place. And he's doing something right now, according to the scripture. What is that? John? He's preparing a place for us. Well, that would be John 14. What else is he doing? He's praying. He's interceding at the right hand of God the Father. So Jesus, in this moment, is praying. Romans 8, in this moment, the Holy Spirit is interceding for us, for you, 
for me, for our broken and hurting world, with groanings that words cannot express. And maybe if the cry of your heart were heard this morning, that would describe precisely what emanates from it. And so there is a conversation of heaven. Do you wonder what it sounds like? I suspect it is not like the conversation of our society right now. And thank God the conversation of heaven rises above it. But today, I want to look at what the conversation of heaven might look like. Listen to these words of Jesus as he prays the night before he is crucified for himself, for his disciples, for you and for me. John 17. After Jesus said this, I'm reading from the 1984 version of the NIV because that's the way I roll. Uh, He looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. We've been waiting for the whole book of John for the time to come. It has not yet come. The time has come, Father. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words you gave me, and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you. I pray for them. I am not praying for the world but for those you have given me, for they are yours. All that I have is yours, and all you have is mine, and glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I've given them your word and the world has hated them and they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's you and me today and perhaps two billion believers around the world in some measure, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world 
may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved me even as you, and you have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. This prayer of Jesus got me thinking, what do people pray for? I mean, most Americans do pray, but what do we pray for? And if you were to list some of those, what would come to mind? Healing, family, safety, direction. You all are doing better than the Lifeway study this morning. <laughs> Good job, Michael. Well, this 2014 Lifeway study asked Americans just that. What do people pray for? And interestingly, the people who say that they pray, there, there are three categories that at least half the people who pray, pray about. The first one is family and friends. The second one is trouble or difficulty of personal circumstance. And the third is and this is positive, that people pray when something good happens. I'm, I'm glad to know that we don't just have the bad list for God. Uh, then there's another category where not quite half the people pray for this, but it's still enough that it made the top um, few uh, issues that people bring before the Father. So somewhat more than a fifth of the people prayed for these four categories. For my personal sin. In other words, repentance or confession for people who are in natural disasters, for God's greatness, and uh, for my future prosperity. And I'm absolutely sure that the billboards that show the, the weekly lottery take generate prayer on the interstates. <laughs> I'm struck, however, by the contrast between what Americans are praying for and what Jesus prays for. I'm struck that Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, and then when we pray, it seems as though the things that should be important about His will don't make the list. In fact, we're praying about our prosperity and our comfort and our safety, and Jesus simply says, I don't pray that you take them out of this world. Instead, Jesus is praying, and I find four when I read this list, four specific requests for humanity. The first one is that we would be protected, not that we would escape protected from the evil one. The second is that we would be sanctified or set apart for a holy special purpose that only God can give us. And interestingly, he prays this for people who are already following him. He prays that he and the Father might be in us. And then notably, that we might be one. What would the American church look like if instead of praying for our future prosperity, we prayed that we would be one, that the world would know that God is true. There's so much challenging about this passage that there's no way for me really to, to plumb the depths of it. Um, I've spent quite a bit of time when Michael told me what a challenging assignment that I, I was be, being given looking at this prayer and asking myself the question, what does God want the River Church to see? And 
I mean, as you look at it, it's very clear that Jesus is praying an outline. He's praying for himself. He prays for his disciples. He prays for the future. But I wanted specifically to look at the bigger picture of where this specific passage fits in John's purposes. And thankfully, you've been preaching through the Gospel of John. And uh, some of you were my students, and you will know that one of the easy ways to know what a passage of Scripture is about is by looking at the repeated words. Can somebody nod and make me feel as though? <laughs> and I find in the Gospel of John that a key word appears throughout. And I think, this is my working theory this morning, is the organizing principle of Jesus' prayer here. And that word is glory. It starts the prayer off, and it concludes the prayer. Jesus says, glorify me with the glory that I had. In fact, if you look at this entire passage, which I think starts uh, in John 13, just as Judas leaves the room, when he was gone, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. If we were to read this prayer again, you would hear glory constantly repeated. In fact, one of the key verses of John very, from the very beginning tells us of the incarnation of Christ and tells us about his glory. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is what happened at that manger in Bethlehem. And John says, we have beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And so I say that the theme of this prayer is glory. Uh, there, there are three things I want us to see about God's glory and Jesus' prayer for God's glory today. And the first thing I, I um, should probably do is define glory. I go to a praying church and people are constantly praying for the glory of God, but I ask myself sometimes, what does that even mean? The Hebrew term for glory is a term for weightiness or heaviness. As someone who will be teaching physics in the fall, I'm reminding myself of these things called black holes, which are infinitely massive. And if you get near a black hole, nothing is coming out. It's all going in because heavy matter draws everything to itself. And when God's glory is revealed, attention can be diverted nowhere else. And so Isaiah, in the year that King Uzziah died, saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, the temple. The seraphim, the burning creatures of heaven, were calling to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts, the Lord Almighty, the, the Lord of heaven's armies, the whole earth is full of his glory. The thing is, Isaiah didn't see it until that very moment. But when he heard the conversation of heaven, the thresholds and the doorposts shook with the glory of God. And he instantly recognized, woe is me for I man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. See, glory immediately takes attention 
from our selfish prayers, our self-absorption masquerading as religion, this weightiness, this glory of God that directs attention to reality is the substance of this prayer. The first thing I want you to see is that there is glory in God's work. Notice Jesus says in verse 4, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Jesus brought the Father glory by doing this work. And interestingly, the glory didn't just go to the Father. In verse 10, talking about his disciples, Jesus says, these numbers are awfully small. Um, somebody read it for me. And glory has come to me through them. Why, thank you. <laughs> glory has come to Jesus through us. In fact, he's going to show his glory to us. There's glory in God's work, and Jesus did it. Now, what I want to say about this is notice that Jesus, who was Philippians 2, equal to the Father, this passage was with the Father before creation began, brought glory to the Father by doing the work that the Father gave him to do. I don't want to be too in, in, indicting of the American church, but it seems to me part of the reason that the world quit listening to us is that we got on a kick of doing our work and giving it to God when instead God wanted us to do the work that He was giving us. And even today, as we watch churches like yours at the beginning of their life cycles and churches all over the DFW Metroplex that are at the end of their life cycles, we see people desperately oscillating between any kind of experimentation with eternal souls that will draw people's attention to God and the way we always did things before and it doesn't work anymore, so we're just going to do more of the same when maybe God has work for us to do if we would just listen to him. Jesus understood this. John 5, he told the people, I am only doing what I have seen the Father do. John 12, I am only saying what I've heard the Father say. Paul would say it to, to the Christians um, this way. Your words should be the very words of God. How refreshing would it be to hear the words of God in our cultural discourse today? Maybe people would pay attention. How would that be possible? It's possible because of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And the Holy Spirit, chapter 14, only speaks what He hears. That conversation that's going on in heaven printed partly for us maybe here in this prayer of Jesus, we can listen in on and join because the Holy Spirit who's talking up there is talking in here. Uh, Pastor Michael's already shared this, but I'm pleased to report to you today that the church you attend is a work of God. It was not birthed out of a strategy session somewhere where somebody said, how can we reach more people or get more money or re-divert the, the sick conversation of society or get people off drugs and off the streets. Instead, week after week, for years, we prayed, Michael and Joel, God may be led to start a church. We thought it would be in Savannah, Georgia. 
But I remember the day when Joel and Katie came back to visit me on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, which is where I went after I, I left Wesley College and was also where they went after they left Wesley College. And um, they said, hey, we need to hijack your lunch plans. And they told me the story about the house that they were going to buy the previous week that didn't happen in Atlanta. And Michael's not becoming senior pastor of a church in rural Georgia but instead having the ticket stamp to plant a church in Dallas and the River Church is here because God led. God led that. You know, I've, I've done a number of things at, at 50 years of age in the kingdom of God. I was saved at the age of 17, and I've never gotten over it. I've never gotten over kind of falling in love with God. Nobody told me you shouldn't just try a bunch of different things until you find, found something that worked. And it's not entirely bad. You should test out your spiritual gifts and see what God wants you to do. But I'm not saying that we should experiment with souls that are here today and forever in eternity, perhaps tomorrow. And I'm discovering that at every major life step, God has given me the direction that we should be praying for. Uh, my current assignment is a school of ministry here in, in um, Dallas and especially for those of you who have some connection to Wesley College, now closed in Florence, I've wanted to tell you this story because it's uh, an illustration of how God does things when we don't recognize he's at work. Uh, I uh, left Wesley College in, in 2009 to become the senior pastor of Crossroads Church of the Nazarene on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. And that summer, I attended the Nazarene General Assembly. It's kind of like the Congregational Methodist General Conference, except we have it only every four years. And the man who ordained me was preaching that Sunday morning, and uh, he told a story uh, in his final sermon, serving the global worldwide Church of the Nazarene. And I listened to the last half of the sermon on the floor because God was telling me stuff, and his message was, we serve the God of the impossible. And I kept telling God, God, what you're calling me to do is impossible. In fact, I told nobody. I thought this may be a very bad brain chemistry day, and sometimes we have them. <laughs> a couple of years later, my church, which had started out so well, but had had a crisis of trust that um, had uh, resulted in my being called as the fourth pastor in four years, uh, we were now in bad trouble. Uh, and Joel and Katie can tell you about this. And we were gathered um, in Louisiana at a prayer gathering, and this was Friday or Saturday before on Sunday. Two of our former staff members at our church would be starting new churches in the same community. Pretty tough. Lots of betrayal of trust. And, um, you know, Jesus completing the work that God called him to do can be very hard. And glory doesn't look like we expect it to look. And soon I became aware that what I am called to leave is not a giant church on the interstate, but a healthy church that can share Jesus. Anyway, so I was, at, I was praying. Um, I was praying for people who were there. I was praying about our church, and I heard this one word from God. And I went home and wrote it in my notes with a big question mark. God said to me, and I promise, Dallas. I was like, God, this doesn't even make sense. Don't you dare. Um, Another thing that was happening in these times is that my folks had moved to Florence, Mississippi right after um, I had begun teaching at Wesley College, but when I left, they stayed, and so I was constantly always in the shadow of Florence, Mississippi. Now, some of you heard me tell this story before, but at first I was okay when Wesley College closed, and then I was not okay, and I didn't really know how to explain what was going on inside of me except that Wesley College had fulfilled 
a mission that was important to the heart of God. And that mission was no longer being filled by anybody that I could see. And all I can do is say that I was getting under the burden that God was giving me, and I didn't know what to do with a burden. So this is not fancy or anything. I came to the conclusion every time I go to Florence, I will just go sit on the Wesley College campus in my car, and I will pray that God will preserve the mission of Wesley College. I, I didn't pray and fast uh, about things. I didn't wear sackcloth and ashes. I would just go sit on this empty campus with a for sale sign in front. And one day as I was rolling out of 111 Wesley Circle, something interesting happened, and I heard the Lord say to me, Keith, I have heard your prayer. And I said, full of faith, that's impossible. And then I began to ask myself, well, what have I been praying? What does that even mean, preserve the, the, the mission of Wesley College? I mean, you like hooked me into this. And so I began to think about that. And I thought, well, maybe Wesley Biblical Seminary is going to start a, a college here. And that was before Wesley Biblical Seminary almost didn't make it. And so I was filing all these things away. And then finally, you know, it's 2013, and I come to a pastor's prayer gathering here in Fort Worth, and I'm sitting in the Burger King on East uh, Chase Parkway after a day of praying with other pastors. I'm waiting for a Wesley College uh, alumnus uh, to, to meet me in a couple of days where he's arranged for me to preach a singles conference in Missouri. And the Lord has said to me, um, as clearly as I know, the, my sheep know my voice and they follow me, uh, Keith, you need to sit here because the pastor of Crossroads Tabernacle is going to call you with an assignment from me. Now, I, I'm just telling you. So I sat in Burger King drinking too much Diet Coke, looking at my phone, waiting until the text came, and my pastor said, are you still here in town? You need to come see me. So I drove over to what is now my pastor's uh, house, and he said, Keith, it's like this. God has called a bunch of people in our church into ministry, and we need to train them, and you're the guy to do it. And I said, oh, I think that's what the Lord has been telling me. And so the next thing that happened is that um, I began to examine how in the Church of the Nazarene you might be ordained and what educational requirements there were. And I discovered that Nazarene Bible College had the best thing going. And so one day I was in my office, I thought all alone in 34,000 square feet on I-10 in South Mississippi. And I placed a call to Nazarene Bible College and I said, I understand that you all have a program where students can take classes from NBC and get credit for ordination. And um, I'd like you to explain that. And we had a conversation. And, and as, an, as an aside, after the conversation was just about over, I said, do you know, a number of my students from Wesley College uh, finished up at NBC, and I know also some people who are studying there. And if you take a class online um, and you decide later you'd like a degree, you can get an hour's credit for that. Um, is that something you could arrange with this particular school if we open one? And, and the director of the Alliance program said, oh, no, 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 Keith, that's not the way it works. If you take a class through one of our training centers, you can get full collegiate credit applied for your, your degree program straight from the school that you teach at. And suddenly, I remembered being on the floor. And I hung up the phone, and I thought all alone in 34,000 square feet on I-10, began shouting at the top of my lungs because I realized I'm a Bible college on two feet. And people came running from everywhere and I had to come up with a cover story. <laughs> uh, 
As I packed up my office to begin a school of ministry in Fort Worth, Texas, I came across the, the catalog for Wesley College that many of you uh, followed to get your degrees. And I looked at the, uh, at the history of Wesley College. Here I am about to move to Fort Worth. We're starting a three-year program where you can get full collegiate credit from Nazarene Bible College, but get ordained as a pastor or a missionary. And the history of Wesley College says, uh, Wesley College got its start as the Congregational Methodist Bible College in Dallas, Texas, in the early 1940s as a three-year course of study for pastors and missionaries. And so that's what I do. And I believe that God called me to that. It's really interesting. We had our first Doctrine of Holiness uh, class. It's on the cycle right now. And um, on Tuesday night this week, we had seven or eight students from the Dallas Metroplex um, in the classroom. And then we had everybody else on the screen, kind of like you would see behind me. And there's Arizona and Mississippi and Alabama and Lubbock and Houston and Pilot Point. And because this was a Doctrine of Holiness class, um, the teacher and the teacher's assistant got through the three-hour class period to get together with a rising sense of what, I'm, I'm just telling you what the teacher's assistant said, there was a heavy presence of God. And so they, they asked, do any of you feel that you need to pray for God to sanctify you? John 17, 17, can't make this stuff up. Eight of the 14. So they're praying with people in the classroom and somebody's on the phone calling the people on the screens. And I believe that's the glory of God. By the way, that's nothing I could have done. It's something only he could have done. Our joy is to participate in what only he can do by hearing his assignment. And it brings glory to God to complete the work that he gave us to do. Glory in God's work. Um, by the way, I'm hearing from people constantly. Um, I got an inquiry from a Mississippi Congregational Methodist Church, um, one of my old seminary classmates saying, you know what, I've got two students that I think really need to come to your school. I said, hmm, <laughs> it's amazing when God gives you his work. The second thing that you see in this passage that brings glory to God is his presence. There is glory in God's presence. We sang about it this morning. Jesus is fixated on the presence of God that he's about to enjoy, verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. But it is not just the presence of God um, in Jesus and the Father that is glory. He wants to share that glory, and we see this in verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me. In the, in the Gospel of Mark in chapter 3, when Jesus called the disciples, he called them specifically because he wanted them to be with them, be with him, to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. Um, it is the glory of God's presence. Um, I'm a Christian today because of the presence of God. I've sat through enough verses of just as I am. I've sat through enough 1970s bus ministry approaches as a child. 
I can tell you, I became a Christian because I went to a church where I could not escape the presence of Jesus. Moses seemed to get this. The people of of God in, in Exodus 32 have made a golden calf and bowed down to it. And God tells Moses, get down there. I'm about to smite them. And Moses says, what are the Egyptians gonna say? Blot me out of your book. Take me instead. God gives the offer that so many Americans want. Hey, I've got a great idea. I'll give you the promised land, but I might smite you on the way. So we'll just say goodbye, and I'll send my angel, and it'll be safe for you, smooth sailing. Have at it. And Moses says, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. I hope I don't have to convince you that the presence of God is important. I just don't know how many of us have experienced the transformational presence of God the way that previous generations have enjoyed Him. My church, Crossroads Tabernacle, started eight years ago hosting a prayer conference, kind of tying the holiness movement and and the Brooklyn Tabernacle prayer movement together. And 64 people came to that prayer conference here in Fort Worth eight years ago. And when we have our prayer conference in October this year, there will be 2,000 people registered, another couple thousand online, and there are five other Awakening prayer conferences all over the country. And this is the day when Sunday school and camp meeting and revival services are all dying. God is doing something. And all I can say is we have decided that as a group of people, we're going to focus on Him, we're going to listen to Him, we're going to pray together. And he, He inhabits that prayer. He shows up. This last prayer conference in October, I'm just telling you, I I could tell you a thousand stories and I'm out of time almost, but I can tell you that we sang the first song and a man with 90% hearing loss ran down the center aisle of 1,500 people gathered yelling, I can hear, I can hear, I can hear. What is that? It's the presence of Jesus. And the presence of God makes all the difference when our arguments and our posturing in society do nothing to transform it. There is glory in God's presence. I don't know what you plan to do for all eternity, but you're going to be in God's presence. And so I don't know why we would want to do anything else now, especially as it seems to be so very effective in the Gospels, in the awakenings of the American history that you and I Uh, would study if we studied honestly, we would recognize that there were times when God moved. And I've read the accounts of Charles Finney when in the 1800s he would go into an upstate New York town and the pastors would not even be believers. And two weeks later he would leave and there would not be a single adult in the entire community who had not given their lives to Christ in that two weeks. People who worked in factories would not even know that that Charles uh, Finney had come to their town and they would fall on the floor at the sewing machines under the burden of the heavy presence of God and be converted before there was even a a service. Over 100,000 people in one event in Rochester, New York were saved under Charles Finney. And they called it the greatest thing since Pentecost. That happened in our society. But why? It was the presence of God. There's glory in the presence of God. Lastly today, I want you to see that there's glory in community. Listen, there is work, and it's important, but Jesus doesn't pray that much about it. There is 
glory in presence, and he prays more about that. But the thing that strikes me about this prayer is that he prays more about community than anything else. He's constantly praying for himself and for us. What? That we would be unified, that we would be one, that we would be in him, that, that we would be in God the Father, God the Son, in the same way that they are in each other. This heavy sense of intimacy that this, this prayer communicates to us that should be the reality of our lives. That we hear the conversation, that our very identities are intertwined with, with God. Why is it that there's such power in two or three gathered together? Because it makes us a community on earth in the image of God in the same way that there is an image of God, Father, Son, and Spirit interceding and agreeing in heaven. We look like heaven. And there's power in that that does not exist with individual people with shut doors in their prayer closets. Nothing wrong with an individual and with shut door in our prayer closet, but we need to understand that God is calling us together. Jesus didn't do anything by himself. And you and I, you know, verse 22 uh, says it well, um, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Um, verse uh, 22 before that, I have given them the glory that you gave me. Now, we may be like Isaiah, and there are glory all around us, and we haven't even seen it. But Jesus says, future believers, 2017, Fort Worth, Texas, Western Hemisphere, I've given you the glory. Really? Well, he said it. It must be true. When will my perception of reality align with reality? Forgive me for being a bad Old Testament professor. For years, I preached Exodus 23, saying, look, God's presence it's about everything. Moses won't put up with anything. But then Moses says, show me your glory. God says, nope, can't do it. I'm going to hide you in the rock and I'll proclaim my name as I, as I go by. And so we know the Lord is Yahweh, Yahweh, I am, I am. Uh, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, uh, showing love to a thousand generations of those who serve to, to those who serve him, visiting the sins of the father to the third and fourth generations of, of those who, who don't obey. But I missed something very important because Moses was up on the mountain by himself. But he goes down from that very same mountain with the plans for the tabernacle and the people build it. And Exodus closes with this. The tabernacle is built and the cloud descends and the priest can't work. Why is that? Well, Exodus says, because the Moses, you're just one guy. It takes all of us. Michael, you're just one guy. It takes all of us. God is a triune God. He doesn't do anything by himself. He needs a community. You and I need a community. The glory of God. The glory of God is seen in completing his work. The glory of God is seen in his presence. The glory of God is seen in community. It was also in March of 2014 when I was at Burger King and God told me, yeah, you need to wait for Pastor Corey to call you. And I suddenly knew I was moving to Fort Worth. That I went back to the Mississippi Gulf Coast and the Lord said to me, I'm sorry. I mean, he just talks to me. I, I know these things. 
Uh, you have to test the Spirit to see whether they're from God. But he said to me, Keith, I want you to go to the Home of Grace and teach. Home of Grace is on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, a Christian men's campus addiction recovery center. And I have lots of brokenness in my life, and I've sinned in many ways and deserve to die and go to hell except for the grace of God in, in more ways than I can possibly count. So I'm not better than anybody. But in this particular way, um, like I've never had a substance abuse uh, problem. I've had lots of other problems, you know. We can trade our brokenness later. But I was like, okay. And I don't suppose, God, this is the point where I tell you, you just told me I'm moving to Texas, and you just told me to take a job in Mississippi. And I didn't have any better sense, except I marched into the Home of Grace office, and I said, hey, God wants me to teach here. And I didn't know that they had a job opening. I didn't know it was a paying gig, but they didn't even question me. They gave me the job, and I started teaching at the Home of Grace. If it were ever always that easy. And so I began to teach, you know, the, how to study the Bible, and eventually I, I added some other classes on, on uh, the spiritual formation practices. And, um, you know, it was really interesting because every Friday I would go to graduation. Guys had been there for three months, and they would stand up on the platform uh, of this church that would flood every time it rained heavily, um, and they would sing this Home of Grace song. The home of grace is a holy place where a man can have his sin washed away. Take a broken heart, get a brand new start, and leave the old man in the grave. I was a man that Jesus saved at the home of grace. You know, it was from a church that was becoming healthy, but it completely changed my perspective. For two years of my life, I knew somebody who was saved every week, 52 weeks. Suddenly, I was seeing lots of possibilities in people. I wasn't fixated on all the problems around me because I knew God could solve them because I was seeing it every week. You couldn't talk me out of it. I became a little jealous that people weren't being saved in my class and that kind of stuff. But after all, I was just there a few hours a, a week. And um, eventually, it, it, after I was you know, handing worksheets to people saying, circle all the repeated words, find the comparison and contrast, that, that God said to me, um, you know you only have one thing to offer them, and that's Jesus. And I said, oh, yeah. And I remember the Saturday, August, I was standing on my front porch, just puttering around the house, been thinking about what I was going to preach the next day. You do that on Saturday, Michael. And uh, it, was a, it was a nice day, and I just had this rising sense that I needed to go to the chapel service that would happen that Saturday night. Now, I went to a college that had chapel services a couple times a week, and I had only been to one chapel service at the Home of Grace, and so I said to the Lord, well, I'd like to go to chapel service. Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. And I was standing on my front porch, and all I can tell you is this voice that was not my own started talking inside my head, and it said this, Keith, you do not understand. You are going to the Home of Grace chapel service tonight because the person who is supposed to speak is not going to show up. And I said, oh, I'm not going to listen to that part. <laughs> Obviously, I'm overprepared for everything I do, and not much has changed in that regard. I was just scared to show up where I hadn't prepared to preach a sermon. So I showed up at the end of that road. There were 100 men gathered there, and the night watchman saw me roll up two minutes after service was supposed to have started. And he said, oh, are you here to preach, Brother Keith? And I said, I'm not scheduled to preach. 
And he said, okay, well, welcome. And I walked in the back door and Chris was operating the sound system. And he said, are you here to preach? And I said, I'm not scheduled to preach. And he said, well, the guy who was supposed to preach didn't show up tonight. And so the, um, they've asked me to play these YouTube songs and we're going to sing for the next 15 minutes and dismiss. And I said, give me five minutes, Chris. So I ran out to my car and on the napkin wrote down three quick points that I was going to try to preach the next day and I walked back in. They thought it would be a great idea. There was a, a young man named Corey who was there who had been a Pentecostal preacher's kid and he had gotten away from the Lord and they asked him, we want you to sing, you can't outrun the long arm of the Lord. And so he sang and that gave me time to get to the platform. And meanwhile, it had occurred to me the previous day that my intern and I had walked down in August heat a mile round trip to graduation where they'd sing that song and I'd heard the testimony of John, 40-year-old man whose 25-year-old Methodist son had brought him there to, so that he would be delivered from addiction and he told us the story that God had shown up in his life that he never knew was possible. And so I said, John, now that, that Corey's saying, I want you to come up here and give your testimony. John came down the center aisle and fell on the altar. I thought, well, that didn't go the way that I planned. But he got up and he shared his testimony about how God had become real to him. And I preached my very forgettable sermon on Matthew 28. And it was now 8 o'clock and I had not been smitten by God for trying to preach unprepared. And it occurred to me um, I should give an invitation to people who will connect in discipleship groups, kind of like the one that we had there. Only I never got to it because I thought nothing else has gone today the way I had planned. So I said, how many of you guys would say, I've been on my own path way too long, and tonight you want to say, I'm going to follow Jesus. Jesus is inviting me to follow you. If that's you, would you just stand up right where you are? And after just a moment, the guy to my right stood. And as he stood, tears began to pour down his face. And I said, thank you. What's your name? Blake. Blake, thank you for standing. Who else? And there were 16 men on there. We had an invitation. Maybe you have them here. People came. They prayed. I don't know. It was 8 o'clock. I didn't get smitten. I was happy. <laughs> but then something remarkable happened. Chris spoke up from the back of the room. Chris said, you guys didn't see what I saw. Corey didn't plan to sing. John didn't plan to testify. Keith didn't plan to preach. Jesus did. And the service that I thought was over just got going. And I think I saw the glory. I can tell you with a hundred of those guys, everything operates around smoke breaks. But nobody walked out to smoke a cigarette at 8 o'clock that night. Somebody said, let's switch off the lights. I don't know why. They had a catacomb service. Never been in one in my life. They started reciting verses to one another. An hour and a half later, I, I, all I can tell you is I was in heaven. These kids would come up to me. Blake came up to me and said, Pastor Keith, thank you so much for teaching. Thank you for coming. Jesus is here. I can feel him. I just want to say I love you. I said, Blake, do you know that he saved you? Has he done for you tonight what you, what you wanted him to do, what you asked him to do? He said, well, I don't know. I said, he wants you to know. He wants you to know. Cody came up to me. He said, Pastor Keith, I've been saying all along, I did something when I was a kid, and I don't have to sign that book where people sign when they ask Jesus to be their Savior, but I have to sign the book. Would you go with me and sign the book? And I walked away, and I thought, you know, all the years I taught at a Bible college, all the years I pastored at church, and Jesus just invites me on my front porch to show up for some work he has to do, and the glory of God comes. 
Not coincidentally, I think it's important to recognize the previous Sunday I'd preached a sermon on following the Holy Spirit. And when I opened the invitation, I said, I have to go. And the church board secretary said, come on, everybody. And about half the church followed the church board secretary. Joel, you all recognize how significant that that was. I think it's all about hearing the conversation of heaven and following. It's the glory of God. This is what I really want for you, the River Church, and honestly for me in a new and a fresh way. Yeah, that I learned to preach in my allotted time, <laughs> but especially that you and I would listen to this prayer of Jesus and make the priority of our lives the glory of God, because it will be the priority of our eternal Jesus, I don't know how to add to this prayer except to say, you've shown your glory, but would you show your glory to us? Would you show your glory to these people? Father, I don't know what we're doing, but if it's not you, would you give us permission to put it down and pick up what you instead intend for us to do? Lord, would you give us a culture of permission to say, I'm not doing anything till I hear from Jesus, because my work doesn't amount to much. God, Forgive us when we have rushed into assignments thinking it's about how well we do when it's really about your presence. If you're not going, I don't want to go. And God, forgive us when we think that we can be Christians all on our own, that we can accomplish the, what, um, what you want um, in our prayer closets and at the ballot boxes and all kinds of places where good Christian citizens work. But Father, we neglect the thing that you really want to do among your people so that the whole world will know that you sent us. I do pray this prayer in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray it, for his glory to be revealed.